Hello and welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient Show. My name is Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today's In the News episode. I'll be joined by our resident cybersecurity experts, Garrett O'Hara and Bradley Singh. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning, Dan. Morning, Dan. Great to, uh, to be back and reviewing uh, all things in cyber in Australia and New Zealand the last few weeks. Um, when we put the last episode to bed, um, one of the biggest cyber attacks in Australia happened um, just at that time. So, uh, Gar, I think you made a quick footnote at the end of the show to, uh, to sort of acknowledge what had happened with the Nine Entertainment Group. Um, but it would be remiss of us not to uh, go back and, I guess, revisit that and, and sort of review what's happened over the last couple of weeks, where the situation's at and what the implications really mean for, for I guess, Channel 9 and, and more broadly for the, in the cybersecurity industry. Guy, what can you tell us about what's happened at Nine? Probably not a whole lot, to be honest. Uh, I don't think that uh, we still really know uh, exactly what happened. You know, it looks like it had the, the hallmarks of a, a ransomware attack, except for the one key piece of, of kind of approach, which is the actual ransom, because, you know, that's sort of ultimately where you, you sort of think that... Um, ransomware attacks will end. So, you know, there's, there's hints of maybe nation state, given that there was no ransom. Um, you know, it presumably Ben wasn't financially motivated unless they unless they screwed up. I mean, that's the other thing. I think we, we sometimes think the attackers are, you know, infallible and will always get it right. But there certainly have been instances where uh, organizations have been hit with badly written or badly performed ransomware where the, you know, the encryption or you know, potentially exfil part happens, but the, the bit where they actually ask for, for the money doesn't uh, through coding errors or because potentially some internal system within Nine or an organization has, has kind of blocked that from happening. So um, we don't really know is, is the truth. I think it's a, it was a scary one for many of us, just given the the logo is very well known. Uh, many people would use Nine as a, you know, source of information and, you know, it is a, one of Australia's larger uh, media organizations. Um, and it wasn't just nine, you know, there was a bunch of kind of um, um, parts of that organization, that kind of broader organization, Sydney Morning Herald, um, the, you know, the printing was potentially affected. There was a few things that, that happened out of it. So um, yeah, I, I think it's it's worrying in, in, in terms of the, the scale and the scope of what happened. Um, but it looks like they were relatively Okay, you know, I think we missed one one show on the Sunday morning um, that would have gone out otherwise. That wasn't being able wasn't able to to get um, uh, broadcast live. But you know, otherwise, for the most part, I think they they maybe just got lucky. Um, so definitely an interesting one. But yeah, just I don't know that we we necessarily know who was behind it, which I think is an interesting position to be in. You know, so many weeks after the attack. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely uh, had a financial implication um, with their their ability to to book and serve their ads has uh, has been affected. So there has been a fun uh, an immediate, I guess, financial um, impact on the organisation themselves. Um, but again, whether that was the intention um, or that's just a sort of a byproduct of what's happened, and I think that's the I guess the little bit of the scary thing here is is not knowing what the intention really was, right? Um, you know, with the ransomware and holding you know, holding a company to ransom and, and asking for X amount of money, um, it sort of becomes quite clear what the what are the motivations are. Um, not having that uh, does open it up for interpretation, I guess, is the way to look at it. And I think you know high profile. Media organisations um, have come under attack around the world previously. Um, we've seen that in in the US and France previously, um, and we know that you know the power of the media. Um, 
we see Malcolm Turnbull back in the you know in the press lately, sort of having a go at News Limited and the Murdochs, and um, we saw the, the sort of the stash and um, with Facebook earlier in the year, right, with access over news. So, I mean, you know, this is high stakes games um, that get played at, at that sort of level, and and you know, nine being the you know eminent organisation that they are in that space, um, certainly, you know, does does create some question marks around, you know, who and why would somebody be uh, going after them and, and what is the, the ultimate purpose of, I guess, you know, such an attack as well. Do you think, and this is maybe a, more of a question than a statement, but I, th- I think what happened in December with Solar Winds with Excelion, some of the stuff that was very sophisticated, we now are almost mentally primed to think that when this stuff happens, that it is you know, really sophisticated, um, well thought out, complex attack chains. But actually, one of the things we we need to be kind of very mindful of is that sometimes you just get unlucky and and bread and butter, you know, vanilla ransomware makes its way through an organization and, you know, hits somebody like Nine where, you know, you think that uh, they would potentially be set up to to fight or mitigate those attacks, but it could happen, you know, to, to maybe over riff on your analogy for high stakes, you know, if it's a poker game, um, I don't know anything about poker, but you know there is a chance I could sit down and just get lucky with the cards and, and beat you know world class players. But it's not because I'm good at poker; it's just that I got lucky. And maybe we're seeing something like that. There are some reports coming out that it, it may have been a Medusa locker. And the interesting mm. thing about that that uh, strain of ransomware, it has been observed in the past that it hasn't always been used for ransom. So potentially, to your point earlier, like pure cause was was maybe disruption. Mm. Um, but like even working with other media organizations in the past here and across the pond, like I remember hearing stories where you know, quite often uh, media organizations, journalists would get death threats because somebody watched a documentary and got upset and decided to send a nasty email in. But in a world where it's so easy to hack and you know, target anybody, you know, disgruntled people are now you know, turning to the dark web and, and deciding that what to do and how to get revenge in other ways as well, I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, one of the, I think the word that's used most in every uh, breach that's reported these days is sophisticated. Right? It's a sophisticated attack. Um, so, and maybe we are uh, looking too hard for some of these things as well. But it's definitely, uh, you know, the concerns there. There's no doubting that, and I think every organisation is on notice. Right? I think there's no mm-hmm. doubting that. Yeah, you're hundred like that's the thing, you know. And we we've talked about this. I think the three of us, but you know, more broadly in the industry, is that idea of um, these big logos being hit. It's horrible, but in a way, it kind of helps the conversation because I think it makes it much more real for board members, for you know, the the sort of senior air quotes business leaders within organizations to really kind of understand the impact that this stuff could have, whether it's sophisticated or not. You know, that ultimately. Uh, availability of services is, uh, to your point, c- critical. And also, one of the things it may prompt organizations to do is kind of do proper business impact assessment where, to your comment, Dan, I wouldn't have thought about ad revenue. You know, that's not where my head is at. And, mm. you know, that that for an organization like Nine would be huge. You know, it's it's turning the tap off for a few days and that yeah. could be very significant. Yeah, definitely. And, um I think we're moving on from the, the nine story uh, to selling information on the dark web, Brad. Um, we've seen another sort of social media scraping of personal information and that being, you know, sold and offered online and that. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest sort of scraping from LinkedIn and, and the offering of the data there? Yeah, sure. So there was, uh, I remember I read this about, it, I think it was a week ago initially, and, and the headline read, LinkedIn breach hacked 500 million accounts stolen and, and sold online. And 
I think quite often we, we hear about these you know, large data breaches, but when we look a little bit closer, one of the most popular methods that people are using to get data today is, is effectively social media scraping. Um, we saw this quite recently as well with Facebook. There was a database which was posted on a hacking website, um, had about 8 million Australian records on there, things like phone numbers, photos, first names, last names, etc. Um, but I guess the challenge with some of this stuff is like it's already out there. Like I know if you're trying to hunt down a person to contact them, you can go to websites and it'll give you their email address if you go to their LinkedIn page as an example. So I would argue to a large degree that a lot of this stuff is already out there. But by the same token, um, I think the disturbing thing with, with some of these attacks in the past is that hackers have been quite clever in leveraged APIs to scrape large amount of data. So whilst those are obviously meant to be, you know, for, for protecting things and sharing information for the systems, um, they can also be used, I guess, to rapidly exfiltrate large amounts of personal data from a platform as well. Is there something here, almost going back to the nine thing in a way, the the media angles and how these things get reported is, you know, the, the words like hack get thrown around and it's quite often it's not really hacks at all. What you're seeing is kind of aggregation of stuff that's already been breached. And, you know, some of the big headlines that I remember from last year were, you know, biggest dump of personal data on the web and stuff that, to your point, Brad, it's already out there. All you're seeing is that um, the data is being kind of aggregated into larger data sets and it makes headlines, but actually the, you know, the risk hasn't changed for, an individual, you know, the stuff is already out there. I want to say those articles are clickbait, but also mm. to the same, same, I guess, volition, like it is quite important. I think we covered a, it might have been a, a, a social media management company, which got breached in an earlier episode. And basically what they did is they scraped social media and that was their, their database of data they marketed and worked from, if you will. So it is a very common thing. And, and I guess maybe it is to a degree up to the platforms to protect us, but also as individuals, like we all know, as soon as we post something online, it, it's there forever. It's, uh, never goes away. It is uh, unsettling. Um, yeah, how much stuff gets put out there and, and how little, yeah, people seem to care about that. Yeah, it's bizarre. I guess as a layman, um, if it seems so easy to be able to scrape these sites and get the information, um, is there actually any value in, in offering it for sale? Um, or, you know, will somebody actually be willing to pay for it if, you know, if the bad guys really have that intention, would they just be able to just go get it anyway? Um, so, like, the fact that it's, you know, there and for sale, yes, that sounds bad, but probably others are already doing it anyway and just not, and, you know, if they want to, if they want the information, they could probably go and get it. It's a valuable list. Like, like both of them are quite valuable, I guess, just because if we think about LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn only had 500 million users a few years ago. So, like, it'd be fairly... Fairly up to date, I'd say. Um, but like you're right, like you can get all this information from the phone book. If you really want to find someone, you can find them. But what you're probably going to see, I'd say, is large campaigns of phishing attacks to those email addresses over the next you know, kind of two to five years. And it'll be the flow on effect from this, which will probably catch people out in the long term. And I think that that's it, right? It's not, it's not necessarily that they're buying this stuff to go after individuals. It's for large scale automated attacks where, you know, that, that's the value here. It's not. You know, they're going to go find Dan McDermott. They're just going to go find anyone who's in the list and do things like cred stuffing and all of, all of those fun things we hear about all the time. Mm, yep, and therefore correct the the risk at scale, right, that somebody's mm. going to fall for something and therefore you know, they get a win somewhere along the line. So, yeah, it's a, certainly a scary thought of the volume that could uh, could be impacted out of something like that. And then potentially what happens when you, you know, correlate that data set with another one, you know, that's something else to think about is, 
um, you know, this in and of itself might have what seems like innocuous data, but, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes mm -hmm. that, that sort of um, using using multiple data sets to kind of have useful stuff emerge that you can then use to either do social engineering attacks or even automate at a higher level. Um, so there's a bunch of things to maybe think about there as well. It's not the individual data sets. It's what they potentially mean when you buy two of them. You know, is there, is there stuff that emerges from those? Mm, definitely. So, And Brad, one of the biggest trends that we've seen over the last year, obviously, since COVID and working from home or working from anywhere as we are, um, is, is the rise in, in alternative communication tools and, and in particular collaboration platforms as part of, I guess, this, you know, new working environment and, and how people do collaborate, um, across, you know, multiple, uh, locations on a, on a regular basis. Um, but we've started to see that there's been some research done with, uh, some vulnerabilities that are appearing through the fact of the rise of these collaboration tools. Um, what's been going on here? Yeah, so look, this is based off a report by uh, Talos, but um, effectively looking at um, the rise of collaboration applications throughout the, the I guess, work from home and COVID, um, but then the potential effect and use of them as a delivery method. Now, interesting enough, like I'm, I'm sure we're all, we're all aware, like, you know, we've all moved to working from home and, and using remote applications, but with the rise of <laughs> memes and animated GIFs and stuff that we're sending each other in kind of internal chat, chat rooms, what happens if there was a piece of malware or a virus behind that? Would we actually know if one of your colleagues had been compromised? I'd say there's a very low chance that you actually would. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's funny we're talking about this. I got a message from a very well-respected cybersecurity person uh, over the weekend. And the link looks right. Um, it's to to sort of help out on something. But, it, you know, I, I don't know, that paranoia has started to creep into other areas where now, this is somebody who I suspect is very good at minding and managing their online presence and, you know, would have two-factor two auth turned on. And I'm just, I'm paranoid. But to your comment, uh, Bradley, it feels like we're just adding more and more ways into organizations and not necessarily building the security around those things. And then with active content, you know, things like Slack being able to share Word docs, you know, with a macro and macro does a connection to a CNC or, or whatever it may be, but... Um, and didn't Slack open their um, their communication so you could actually potentially invite people outside of your organization to use Slack as a means to communicate with you? Uh, you, 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 you can. Like they're, they're kind of open platforms to it to a, a degree. And Discord, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. It's probably more popular in the gaming community, but I think Microsoft have just announced plans to potentially buy them. Um, Discord's even worse for, I guess, kind of open, open communications. Um, but a big problem behind both Discord and Slack is that when you upload a file to share, it gets uploaded to the Slack or Discord CDN. So it effectively compresses the file, but it also changes the hash. So if you upload a virus or a piece of malware, when the person goes to download it on the other end, it's going to be a different hash to that it was originally. So the chance of infection, especially if you don't have any, I guess, kind of corporate controls around these types of services, which hardly any organization would, mm -hmm. the risk of infection is so much higher. And then you're into, I mean, that's why people are buying Casby, you know, it's, it's for that, this exact use case. And also that's why zero trust is emerging, right? I mean, it's, it's that thing of just don't trust anything ever. Yeah. yeah there's no doubting that this is, you know, going to be a, a rising concern. And I think we'll see more, you know, 
attacks and sophisticated attacks, I'm sure, being uh, reported via collaboration tools, right, uh, this year. Um, and it's going to, it's sort of a, a vulnerability and Brad, you know, a great way of sort of, you know, highlighting that vulnerability in terms of the actual technology and what's required to, uh, to look to, to try to shut some of this down because, um, you know, it is, it's, it's something new and it is creating a potential sort of, you know, weak link in the chain, if you like, um, where other areas are, are being invested into and, and we're seeing, you know, some good results in that. But we always sort of see, see things get through anyway, even on main channels like email and stuff. So to see a, a I guess a new channel that can be, uh, exploited, um, it's going to be an interesting watch and see, I think, throughout the year as well. One of the, uh, the biggest, uh, I guess attack vectors that we always know is, is the notion of the disgruntled employee. And, um, and we saw one recently in the US where, um, where it was a, a former employee at a, at a water plant, um, not happy, but had access to all of the, the systems still. So even though they'd, they'd left and obviously probably left under uh, not great circumstances and they were quite disgruntled in their own right, um, was able to still access um, the, the water treatment plant itself um, and create a huge, you know, public health scare and, and, and massive implications of what happens in, with those type of attacks. Um, so it's an interesting one, but one that, like, again, uh, is highlighting, I think, the importance of, you know, being able to lock away our critical infrastructure. And I think this is an ongoing theme uh, throughout this year and certainly here in Australia with the regulations starting to, to come to life. Um, but also like just sort of showing the fact that, you know, if you don't sort of, you know, stop those disgruntled employees and that malicious insider, um, it can become, you know, a really serious situation really quickly for people. Definitely. I mean, this this story to me, like, there's some interesting things going on here uh, to me that a 22-year-old ex-employee could do what he did or even a current employee. Forget about being disgruntled. Even if you were an incredibly happy employee, you should never be in the position where an individual can log on and make any sorts of changes that could have such a, a huge impact to critical infrastructure. Basic security is... I think they call it M of N controls or, you know, multi-person control. You want to go back to the 70s, you know, the movies where the the nuclear bombs can only be set off with two keys. It, it to me, is the questions I would be asking if I, you know, if I was in Ellsworth County in Kansas is, hang on, like how did, how did you guys have your systems and processes set up in a way that allowed this to happen? Because um, it feels like maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe this shouldn't have have happened at all just based on just good pro pro um, process. It's one of those things, you know, obviously we're here talking about cybersecurity and resilience, but so much of the things that we talk about can often be fixed with thinking about what good process looks like at a human level. And it's not just the awareness stuff, but actually building good human processes. So a 22-year-old disgruntled or happy employee can never, ever log on and make changes to something as critical as, um, you know, a water system. And then to your point, Dan, this could have been huge. It was quite dangerous to just jump in there. Like what he tried yeah. to do was he tried to up the sodium hydroxide in the water to effectively make the water toxic. Um, that's bleach, isn't it? Is that? I'm not too sure. I, I think it is. I think that's like, you know, household bleach. Wow. There you go. Um, he did get caught though. Uh, and he is, I think he's getting charged and potentially facing up to 25 years in prison. Um, but it also came out that the uh, the organization didn't have a firewall in place or even strong password security. So I think that's probably actually the, the, the real reason behind it. 
And, you know, to circle back to the critical infrastructure stuff, I mean, that, that, this is it, right? This is the bit where you kind of look at what we need um, as a society, and I would say Australia, but it's global. It's not, you know, we're not unique, is do you, do you need to regulate this stuff so that there is no option or there are consequences and big consequences for maybe a cavalier approach to, you know, technical controls, the, you know, the process side of things where... Um, building standards out at a, a sort of national level uh, means that at least you can go into critical infrastructure ordered against them, you know, based on the nuances that exist within critical infrastructure and ICS systems and SCADA and all of that good stuff. But, you know, it gives you standards and baselines so that we at least know as a nation, you know, is our desalination plant up for being popped or is it okay or is this dam going to overflow because a 22-year-old can log on and, and decide to make some, you know, huge change. Um, you know, that's, I don't know, I think there's some good stuff that would come out of a, a critical infrastructure bill around that. Well, I worry about Texas, right? Like, it just makes me think of, like, how, like, over in America, they've obviously segregated a lot of their infrastructure. Like, from a security perspective as well, that starts to raise complications. Like, they need to, I mean, look, yeah, I think a great job from our government coming forward with the critical infrastructure bill because, like, to, to both your points, like, this is the exact reason why. So, Gara, are you saying that not only should the individual um, in this case be, you know, how to account and, and, and charged, um, but Kansas Water uh, should be on the hook for, uh, for having, you know, allow, almost allowing this to happen far too easily? Um, I'm very conscious that we're, we're recording something. So, you know, I've got a personal opinion on this, um, which is that any organization uh, where they've got a, a sort of either fiduciary or societal responsibility. You know, there's a reason boards exist. There's a reason regulations, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, the stuff we have locally, like the, that stuff exists so that we know what good looks like. And to me, if I look at any critical infrastructure, whether that's kind of electricity or water supply, health, um, like there, there needs to be a conversation around who is accountable because it's really, really easy to externalize costs or to cut corners to make things look good on a balance sheet, but actually the downstream costs are borne by people in Kansas in this case where, you know, potentially their drinking water is put at risk because somebody tried to save money or the overhead of good security processes or technology was deemed too high. So, you know, my <laughs> I'm trying to be maybe a little bit sort of weaselly here, not, not sort of answer directly, but, you know, you probably get the sense of what I'm saying is that, you know, in some way organizations on top of individuals, um, when, when, when you look at it, right, I'm, you know, I think if they've, if they've done good security and, if, and somebody managed to work their way around it, then, okay, that's fine. But if you're at a point where one individual can make a change like this, that points to, you know, there's a question around what the processes were and how ser uh, seriously security was being taken. I didn't really answer that question at all, did I, Dad? <laughs> no, I think you did. Uh, you know that they do need to be held to a, a high standard, right? And to uh, to account in terms of actually, you know, what does those standards look like, and how do we how do we know what, like you said, what good does look like, and ensure that that is in place as you know as minimum standards. And mm. I think that what we also see is is we've talked about the critical infrastructure bill, but regulators are looking at this all the time, and um, and you know one of the leading, I guess industries for regulation and trying to stay ahead of the curve is certainly APRA in financial services. Um, and they've come out recently and, and have spoken about the fact that while the banking sector itself hasn't had a major breach and, and that they're acknowledging that it's probably only a matter of time and that one of the vulnerabilities that they have is not just 
you know, the, the, say the big four, for example, who are, who pour millions into this and are trying to, you know, stay ahead of the curve. But it's all of the, all of the people that they work with in their ecosystem. Um, and the way that that actually connects together can create that, that notion of a supply chain vulnerability. And I think that that's something that is, going to be incredibly difficult um, as we move forward with the critical infrastructure bill that they're looking at industry by industry. Um, so you might protect within one sector, but when they start cross-pollinating and working mm-hmm. together, you know, as a, as a, a economic society, um, vulnerabilities may exist somewhere else. And, and somebody who wasn't held to such a standard could be the one that could be that weak link in the chain, if you like, as well. So it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, APRA uh, Talking about it almost proactively and almost getting ahead of uh, what's coming um, with the with the new regulations as well. Yeah, okay. it's this is timely for me at a personal level. So um, you know, everyone's aware of what's happening with interest rates and you know the, the, the money you you get when you have money in a savings account is abysmal. So I'm sort of, I've moved some of the very small amount of money that I do have into a, a managed fund and. Um, here's what happened. Signed up, got an unencrypted email from the third party that was doing the, I suppose, the the management side or the, you know, the, the outsource platform for, you know, looking at and then sort of managing the, the funds. And like my, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm thinking like, really? You know, it's 2021 and I've just got an unencrypted email with, with a, a client ID. I don't think there's a password, but it had an attachment from memory with details of the transaction um, and I raised it with them. Um, that's a, probably about a month ago now and have had responses that have been a little bit kind of lax in my opinion, you know, a little bit of, yeah, we're, we're working on it. We'll, we'll look to get it fixed within a couple of months. I'm like, are you kidding me? What, like, what is going on? Um, like to your point, Dan, I, I think there's a couple of big issues here, finance and banking in general, they carry a huge amount of technical debt. Massive technical debt, and I think one of the things that we've seen um, multiple times is that when there is an appetite for those big changes that would sort of uh, modernize or, or get a, a large institution up to a point of kind of what you air quotes call a you know reasonable ICT standard, uh, you look at the cost and you look at sort of shareholder value and what it would mean, and people kind of shirk away from it and kind of go, oh, maybe next year, maybe next year, and then it's time goes by and, and the problem gets worse. Um, I think that's a huge issue and there's a huge, huge amount of technical debt in these organizations. And then that complex supply chain where you're seeing some of the, the sort of opening of how finance and, and sort of um, that industry is done and the emergence of, you know, smaller organizations that are supply chains into the large organizations. And, and to your point, I mean, it, it feels a little bit, not like a wild west, but I think, yeah, first of all, APRA's remit probably needs to broaden a little bit when you look at what the, the the organizations that they're actually able to do anything with. It probably needs to be bigger than it is at the moment. And then we're almost back to standards. You know, some of the CPS standards that they have out there are becoming, I mean, the, the CPS 234 is the big one, right? That was guidelines until, was it July last year? And then it became a standard. And maybe that needs to happen with, with more of their guidelines and, and more of their standards is just stronger enforcement, but to a broader set of organizations. I, I think this is part of it. So I think as part of APRA coming out and saying, look, cybersecurity is serious this year. Um, we're, we're, you know, they, they use the word cyber resilience a lot and operational resilience, which I think is fantastic. Mm. Um, I think it, it, so part of this is kind of going through and relooking at the prudential services, sorry, standards. Um, but I think you're right. Like it only applies to finance, but and we've talked about this before, but, Financial services or fintech, 
quite often can be some of the most, I guess, advanced organizations or industries when it comes to cybersecurity and managing their data correctly, just because they face these risks every day and then the dollar values are so real. So it's good. To, I think it's a fantastic thing to see, but also be interesting to see, I guess, how strong the wording is as well. Um, for a lot of organizations, you know, we speak to every day, they, they, they bring you know, stuff like this up, but I don't think a lot of them also have really, I guess, kind of looked back and, and seen how they stack up against some of these today. And yeah, it's just a little bit of the back of mind, but I'm hoping something like this brings a lot more forward. Certainly not being a lawyer, but um, I think the the issue of who is the regulator is going to become a huge issue in Australia as well. Mm. Like we're going to see like, you know, APRA trying to, to set their standards and get ahead of things. The critical infrastructure um, regulations will come in, um, but who is the actual ones that are in control of, of actually regulating that and or what does regulatory overlap look like as well? Um, and is there then gaps or vulnerabilities within the regulatory system itself that might create some challenges and issues as well um, to to be able to get people to uh, to that higher standard and to hold it to account um, if there's any sort of uncertainty as to exactly where um, I guess the obligations actually lie and who can in, be enforcing those as well as we go forward. So I think it's a it's a it's a very big area that's yeah. going to take not only this year but I think multiple years for this to to continue to come to life and unravel as we um, really uh, start to understand what this looks like going forward and what the implications are going to be for organisations um, to 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 comply um, and how they're going to actually be able to, you know, prove that compliance um, to one or potentially multiple regulators as well as we go forward. Yep, it is spaghetti. It's... Uh... I, I think it's going to be longer than two years. I think it's it's probably, you know, we're a decade away from getting this stuff sorted. And that might sound very pessimistic, but it's just incredibly complex. Technically, people-wise, legally, um, I mean, that's the thing that makes me shudder. Like, I just, I can't even fathom the, the how you how you build fair regulations and legislation around some of this stuff when, you know, you see it at a very base level, Um when, you know, something like a, you know, fake transfer to a bank account that was changed because somebody's, you know, been um, uh, branjacked, as an example, you know, who's responsible there? Is it the, the organization that was, got, that was branjacked or is it, the, you know, the person who transferred the money without checking that the bank account was real? You know, it's just a minefield. Indeed, it's uh, definitely, I think, an ongoing one that um, that I'm sure we'll uh, come across again in, in, in episodes in the future as well. So, And on that note, uh, we'll uh, call this show to an end. But uh, again, Gab, we're back to uh, interviews for next week and uh, looking forward to, uh, to who you have in store for us on the next episode. Yeah, it's going to be part two uh, of Joe Stewart Retray. So that's the one where we get into a pretty interesting conversation, actually. I mean, it's it's around gender diversity, Mostly, um, it's probably you know broader diversity, but incredibly important from a resilience perspective. You know, I think we we often sort of focus on the breaches and the hacks and all of that stuff, but there's actually a whole set of things that we need to do as an industry around uh, diversity. And we know diversity brings better innovation, it brings resilience. Um, you know, all the indicators from a business perspective are that it's a good thing to do. Um, and I would say it's you know the same applies to cybersecurity and cyber resilience. You know, get more. Let's get more minds in here. Let's get more people from different backgrounds thinking about this stuff, and you know, get get a better fix to, you know, so we can all retire and not have to worry with our abacuses and you know tinfoil hats. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, looking forward to part two, and uh, 
on that note, uh, enjoy the week, gentlemen, and um, we'll look forward to uh, the next In the News episode in a fortnight's time. Speak to you then.